Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Yes, it's just me, Robert, and Dale in the studio today. I'm afraid Jean's unwell and she won't be with us, but a radiothon next week, she'll be back here, no trouble at all, because 3CR needs support, and Jean is the woman that comes to the aid of the party, the party that is here at 3CR every day when we're doing these wonderful recordings. And as I say, next Saturday at 12 o'clock, it's radiothon time, so... You know, get get online, have a look at your bank balance, and see if there's anything you can give to keep 3CR um, on the air, because next Saturday we'll be asking you to dig into your pockets, dig into your bank balances, go through your spare chains that's sitting on the on the chiffonier in your front hall, and keep 3CR going as part of our Radiothon, our Radiothon fundraising, which, is, as I said, is next Saturday at 12 o'clock here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Well, for those people who are curious about what you're going to hear for the next hour, we are the dogs. We are the defenders of government schools. In fact, we're the Australian Council for the Defenders of Government Schools. And we've been around for about 40 years. And we've been around for about 28 years, I think, here at 3CR. Because government schools, unfortunately, still need defending. The defence of government schools these days is very different to what it was back in in the days of yore because... Government schools are being attacked by lots of different types of people, different various interest groups. Obviously, the private school lobbies and the private school system uh, have been attacking the government school system uh, by taking taxpayers' monies away from them um, to educate people in in schools of various religious, um, religious, I don't know, how can you say? I think Jean would say peculiar, educate people in the peculiar tenets of various sectarian religions, and the government's been funding that. And because we defend government schools, we have to extend what it is that we talk about to the separation of religion and the state, because that's actually core to how you can defend government schools in Australia. Not in other countries. What we do here is quite unusual. And, of course, when it comes to analysing and looking at how government schools are funded across Australia, we actually now have a new enemy. The new enemy, of course, is the corp or as I like to call them, the um, organisation of free market theologians who think that competition and choice is good for everything and it's good for the education of our children. Because as you know, in a free market, you have winners and losers. The winners win, the losers lose, and that's the way we should run our education system according to them. But not according to us here at the Defenders of Government Schools. We think every child, no matter the income of their parents or their ethnicity or their gender even, we don't think that it should be ever a situation where one child is advantaged over another in the opportunities that are presented to them as a small child through the education system. Now, as we always do, I'm going to start off our program with a press release. Now, press releases. This is press release number 659. And if you're interested in press release 658, 657, all the way back to press release 1, you can get hold of them on our website. They're all there. And our website, of course, is www.adogs.info. These press releases chart the history of the issues over the last three or four decades um, in Australian education. And currently there's been some interesting things going on in New South Wales that the dogs have noticed. Now there's a fellow, um, his name is Mark Scott. He used to run the ABC. You know, those people, the friends of the ABC, that, that's the mob they're all friends of, the Australian Broadcasting 
is it corporation or what is, commission? Yeah, the Australian Broadcasting Commission. Anyway, he's not there anymore. He's got a new job. He's going to be the managing director of the New South Wales Education Department. He actually replaces Dr. Michelle um, Branigez, I think that's how you say it, B-R-U-N-I-G-E-S, and will be responsible for 2,000 schools, 49,000 teachers and 790,000 students in public schools, public schools in the state of New South Wales. Now, Mark Scott himself did not attend a public school and has never worked for them. His wife is the principal of uh, the North Shore Girls' School, which, of course, is a wealthy private school in Sydney. Uh, The name of that school is called Winona. Now, dogs do not consider he has the necessary qualifications to do this job, and he's neither committed in word or deed to the public education system. And it's a little disturbing that someone who's in charge of the public education system in New South Wales has yet to come out with any statement suggesting that he is committed to the public education system in New South Wales. But here at the Dogs, we'll just watch this space. Now, according to his biography, uh, Mr Scott was born in 1962 in Los Angeles. He holds dual Australian and United States citizenship. Not sure quite how he can do that. The United States don't really like dual citizens, but we'll... We'll we'll check up on that. Now, he was educated at the Knox Grammar School, and Scott worked for the New South Wales Griner, a Liberal government, as Chief of Staff to the Education Minister, Virginia Chadwick, back in the day, and as a Senior Advisor to the Education Minister, Terry Metherill. So, yes, I suppose he has had some involvement in education, but it is as a Conservative Minister's Advisor. Now, this um, appointment has been reported in The Guardian, and um, there's some interesting people who've gone onto the Guardian website and have some noted some very interesting things about this, this appointment. And Mr Stephen Saunders uh, commented on this appointment when he said, Hello, Mark. The national plan to cripple public schooling has a carrot and a stick. The carrot is the $10 billion federal slush fund for God schools, he said. The stick, which is you, your new job is to ensure that state schools woefully underprovide for self-evident and predictable population growth. Too easy. Anthony Nolan, a stereophonic, wrote, He proved totally unable to defend the public broadcaster and has now been installed so he can do the same thing for public education. And uh, Miro Man makes the comment on Mark Scott's appointment. He says that sounds like a job for one of the boys. Uh, pretty tight incestuous bunch, our politicians and senior public servants. Just another example of how well our democracy works. May as well be an outpost in sub-Saharan Africa. <laughs> Same deal you get there. Well, yes, thank you very much, Miro Man. Um, yeah, we're going to watch that space, because if Mark Scott's going to be running all those thousands of public schools in New South Wales, and he has had no demonstrable commitment to the public schooling system, um, that might prove very problematic, even though the Conservative Minister up there, Adrian Piccoli, has made lots and lots of noises about things, um, you know, Gonski and various other sort of positive issues. But before we um, get into the meat of our particular program, um, some of you might have noticed, in fact it's very difficult not to notice, that um, over on the other side of the pond, the pond being the Pacific Ocean, um, there's another country up there in the north, it's, what is it, the United States of America, and they're having an election. And um, one of the candidates, I think it's for the Republican Party, I think his name is Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump um, has said lots of things that have annoyed lots of, lots of people. I don't really care about that, because luckily it's over the pond just at the moment, and he's not quite in the Oval Office. Is it the Oval Office in the White House there? But he has come out with some statements. He wouldn't call them policies. He has come out with some statements with regard to education over in the United States if he were to become the president. And this is rather interesting because Donald Trump is not a self-made man but a very wealthy man and he thinks that competition is the way that the education system, the free market is the way the education system in the United States should be run. He says, and I quote him, this is Donald Trump, Sorry, listeners, if this is offensive to you, but I'm going to quote Donald Trump. Um, He says, Competition is why I'm very much in favour of school choice. Let schools compete for kids. 
I guarantee if you forced schools to get better or close because parents didn't want to enrol their kids there, they would get better. Those schools that weren't good enough to attract students would close, and that's a good thing. For two decades, this is Mr. Trump, he says, I've been urging politicians to open the schoolhouse doors and let parents decide which schools are best for their children. Professional educators look to claim that doing so will be the end of good public schools. Better charter or magnet schools would drain the top kids out of that system or hurt morale of those left behind. And he says, well, suddenly, the excellence that comes from competition, he says, is being criticised. Well, I'd actually like to thank Mr Trump because he's put in one very short statement, um, he's outlined the free market theologians' ideas about why it is that children, you know, three and four-year-olds, and their parents should be made to fight each other. They should be made to fight each other in terms of education and the winners and the excellent children will win and the losers will... Well, he doesn't mention that. I mean, I don't think he really cares because by implication he doesn't seem to be interested in the losers. He's just interested in the winners. And so he thinks a public school system should be there uh, to promote the excellence of the children who are naturally advantaged and for all those other people he has nothing to say at all because I don't think he really cares. And I think that's the fundamental essence of the free market theologian's attitude to education. Because what he's saying is not unusual in a country like Australia. In a country like Australia, that is, he has actually outlined Australia's education policy in a nutshell. That's where we're going. In fact, in many places, that's where we're already at. So, Mr Trump, thank you very much for outlining what he thinks the American education system should be and I think outlining what the Australian education system currently is. It's all rather sad. But in introducing what we're going to be talking about next, uh, we're going to be analysing the education policies of the three major political parties on the DOGS program today um, to see if any of the major political parties have an education policy that's worth consideration for defenders of government schools. But before we do that, I think we'll have a little overture.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program, and thank you very much to George, George Frederick, George Frederick Handel for the overture to his uh, very popular work, um, The Messiah. Um, well, we're looking at now and comparing the, the education policies of the Liberal Party, the Labor Party, and the Green Party. Um, and I can tell you before we start, um, just so you can go and get a cup of tea, uh, none of this, none of this is um, messiah-like in its hopefulness for government schools. But nevertheless, I think it's we. Um, I think we need to have a look at it. Now, education policy these days is in the ever-lengthening and diminishing shadow of the Gonski report, which we've discussed in detail here on the Dogs Program in the past. Now, education policy, in particular Gonski funding for schools, is, and is actually shaping as a major issue for the election coming up. By the way, it's on July 2nd, if you've forgotten. Still a fair way off, but plenty of time to think about it. And, and we're going to outline the statements by the Labor, the Coalition and the Greens they have provided to the Australian Education Union outlining their education policies. Both the Labor and the Greens have committed to the extra $4.5 billion of, for schools in 2019 and 2020, and that will be distributed according to them on the basis of needs, the needs policy. This means that the full six years of the Gonski Agreement can be delivered. These resources will build on the good work that Gonski funding is already doing in schools across Australia and ensure that the disadvantaged schools get funding increases they need for the students. Now, the Coalition, in contrast, is promising an extra $1.2 billion, not $4.5, to be delivered from 2018 to 2020, which it claims represents an increase of 3.56% per year ahead of inflation. However, and there's always a however when it comes to politics, isn't there? However, there are still doubts about the key aspects of this policy, including exactly how the funding will be distributed. Despite claims it will be needs-based, the Coalition's own budget papers show cuts to public schools in Tasmania and the Northern Territory. The distribution between states is yet to be, yet to be worked out, while the Coalition says states must meet certain conditions for their schools to receive funding. It can't say what will happen if the states refuse. Now, both major parties, the Lib Labs, are promising a long overdue increase in support for students with disabilities. The Coalition will be delivering an extra, I don't know, $120 million or so, and Labor's promising roughly twice that from 2017 to 2019. It's clear that Gonski is a major difference between the parties and actually a key election issue. The Coalition talks about needs-based funding, but what it's promising will not deliver the increases for disadvantaged schools that they need. Labor and the Greens have shown they understand the importance of investing in our schools and funding Gonski in full. Now, Mr Simon Birmingham, who is currently the Federal Minister for Education, um, has a few things to say about this. Um, education is the foundation of a skilled workforce, according to the Australian Education Union, a growing economy and a creative community. The jobs of the future will be more complex than the jobs of today and will need higher and better levels of education. Yep, I agree. While states and territories are primarily responsible for funding and running government schools, the Australian government has an important role in setting national priorities, promoting coordination and providing additional funding that is affordable and deliverable. Australian schools generally achieve good outcomes, but our performance has declined over time despite significant increases in real terms to total government funding over the last decade. Yes, we'll come back to that. We agree with the education experts, including both OECD and the ACER, that's the Organisation of Economic Cooperation and Development, and ACER is the Australian Council for Educational Research, who know that while strong levels of funding are necessary, that funding is spent even how the funding is spent is even more important. We can and must do better to focus on what is needed to improve. Well, it's really very simple. In Australia today, for every dollar you give to a child that needs it, you have to give a dollar to a child that doesn't. It's really that simple. And the private education system, which, uh, I don't know, we keep saying it, but it has to be said, the private education system is not actually interested in educating the children of Australia. never has been. It's, in ed it's interested in educating the children of those people who can afford it and those people who have the particular religious tenets and beliefs um, of, of, of the school system that they want to enrol their child. They're not interested in all the kids. They never have been. 
I mean, it's a real strange thing, but there's only one system in education that's interested in educating the poor and the needy and the hungry. Not because they have to, but because that's their job. That's what they want to do. And the state education system, the government school system, are the best schools because their values reflect the values of what Australia is supposed to be all about, which is a fair go. The private school system is about the opposite of a fair go. And they attract government funding to prosecute their agenda. It's really rather strange. Anyway, Coalition is quite interested in keeping things pretty much the way they are and making sure that private schools continue to get funded at the level they are. And if you dig into the detail, the Labor Party is exactly the same. Now, why? Why would the Labor Party, supposedly a party of fair go, supposedly the party of of making sure everyone has enough, um, the Labor Party is not interested in everyone having enough education. The Labor Party is interested in continuing the strange situation we have in Australia where private schools get a dollar for every time a child in a state school gets a dollar just because. It's not means-tested. It's not a matter of choice. They just get it. Why? Um, well, the Labor Party is a political party. <laughs> there are historical reasons for you, and I'm sure Jean would outline those next week when we come to it. But um, there's historical reasons for it. But there's political reasons for it. The religious lobby in Australia um, purports to have a great deal of power. And if they take money away from private schools, uh, the lobby groups associated with those private schools will make sure the Labor Party doesn't get into, a, into power. The Labor Party is afraid. The Labor Party is afraid of the religious lobby in Australia. The Labor Party is afraid of the free market theologians who might give them bad publicity if they do the right thing by this, the, the children of Australia. So um, if you're interested in defending and promoting government schools in Australia, you cannot vote for the Liberal Party in all good conscience um, on just simply on the basis of their education policy is inequitable and it's unfair and it's, quite frankly, um, a little bit silly. Labor Party, I don't think you can vote for them either, on the basis of their education policies, because they're interested in continuing the crazy system that we currently have. So you can't vote for either of those, but what about the Greens? What about the Greens? What do the Greens say about how money is spent in Australia? Well, that's actually a rather interesting thing. The Greens support public education system, but they do it on the basis of needs-based funding. They say that its core education exists for the public good. Wealth should not determine an individual's quality of education. Well, that's a good start from the Greens. The Greens want to build a public education system that is recognisable as being among the best in the world, where funding is provided on the basis of need. Well, that's nice too. The Greens also recognise that all levels of education are critically important, critical components of lifelong learning and the government has a primary responsibility to fund all levels of the public education system. Good. Care for children is a responsibility of society as a whole, they say. The quality of care received by babies and children provide flow-on effects for the whole of their lives and the community. Early childhood education should be provided by government and accredited community organisations and not-for-profit providers. Good. They also say we must also take into account the resources for each individual school, a direct measure of parental socioeconomic status and the school's capacity to generate income from all sources, including fees and other contributions. Hmm. Okay. Yes, some noises there. They go on to say money saved from any reforms to the funding model of very wealthy non-government schools must be reinvested into public schools with the highest proportion of students from disadvantaged backgrounds. Yes, well, that's tinkering at the edges. If you take money away from very wealthy, I'm not quite sure what that means, very wealthy non-government schools, then that money can be reinvested, and that is, in fact, a good start. They go on to say that, as the Greens, they've committed to full funding of the Gonski reforms, along with much-needed $4.8 billion to increase resources to students with disabilities over the next four years. Good. Culturally appropriate education for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, they say, is important, which incorporates language and culture into curricula and supports families and children to engage with the education system is essential. Yep, I agree with that. The system should enable Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to establish and control their own education where they choose to do so. 
in their own language, consistent with their culture. This is part of a comprehensive plan for fairer funding for schools. Fair enough. They also go on to say, all students should have the opportunity to study at university and TAFE, regardless of their private capacity to pay for their education. Yep, no worries. The Greens also say, a publicly owned and properly funded TAFE system plays an essential role in providing economic prosperity and a socially just society by offering lifelong education opportunities and skills to a broad range of our community. Vocational education and training should be primarily provided through the public TAFE system. Primarily provided, oh, here we go. Uh, Yeah, I think it should be provided by the public TAFE system. And if you want to go outside of the public TAFE system to get your vocational education and training, you can pay for it yourself. If you wish to be a Catholic plumber rather than a normal plumber, you can pay for that particular religious plumbing degree. If you wish to be, if you wish to not become um, educated vocationally outside the TAFE system, quite frankly, that's your own responsibility, and you have to pay for that yourself. That's the dog's position, um, but it's not necessarily the Greens' position. The community not-for-profit audit education and VET sectors, the Greens say, should also be supported, but not at the expense of or in competition with public TAFE. Okay, so they're, they're, they're talking around the issue there. They go on to say that universities are places of learning and research where the needs of the whole community and the values of service to the public, scholarship and academic freedom should take priority over sexual and community interests. That's fair. This is why the Greens are committed to a 20% reduction in student fees as they, as they transition from free, high-quality education for all Australians. The Greens will ensure that universities are adequately resourced by the government to ensure planned growth in the sector can occur in order to improve accessibility. An increase in the cost index per student funding of all public universities and adequate funding of all rural, regional and out-of-suburban universities should also occur. Well, that's all very nice. Um, but what, there's one thing the Greens haven't said... It's one thing the Greens used to say until they changed their education policy, which is most unfortunate. The Greens used to say that no public monies should be used to fund or prop up any religious organisation that wishes to, I don't know from their point, indulge in educational services or any other uh, private organisation. The government should fund government schools. That's what the Greens used to say. They don't say that anymore. They now talk about, well, let's defund very wealthy private schools, but we'll still keep giving money to the rest. Now, I think the Greens, um, if you're a member of the Greens and listen to this program, I think you should examine your education policy. I'd take it back to the way it was, and I'll tell you why. Um, The various religious lobbies over the last three weeks in this federal election campaign have come out virulently, some would say rapidly, these religious organisations, the Australian Christian Lobby being one, have come out virulently, virulently and rapidly anti-Greens. They want to make sure the Greens do not represent any Australians. They, I think this is almost too strong a word, they hate the Greens. They like the Liberal Party. They kind of like the Labor Party, but they hate the Greens. Now, I'm sure the Greens want to be as politically successful as they possibly can, but I can tell you, anyone who votes on the basis of the advice they get from a religious institution won't be voting for the Greens in any case. So, quite frankly, if you're a member of the Greens um, standing for Parliament, I don't see there's any reason why you can't just stand up and say it is wrong to privatise education on a religious or any other basis. Now... So it comes down to the fact, in very simple terms, that from the department, from the from from here at Dogs, the defenders of government schools, which are an apolitical organisation, having examined the policies of what's going on in the federal election of the three major parties, um, we cannot support or endorse any of them. The Sex Party, however, the Sex Party, what a wonderful name, the Sex Party, who are also standing for the federal government, do have an education policy that completely and totally aligns with the position of us here at the Council for the Defence of Government Schools. They very simply say it, and it's a a very simple thing to say, it's not even a radical thing to say, 
the sex party say uh, no government money should be allocated to any educational institution which is not open to all, which is not free, which is not secular, which is not universal in the way it deals with the education processes. No money should be given to any organisation that wishes to be exempt from the anti-discrimination laws of the country and no money should be given to any organisation that wishes to make money, make a profit out of the education of the children and people and adults and grown-ups um, of Australia. So, yes, that's our sort of very brief analysis of what's going to... Of, of the Australian Council for the Defence of Government School's position on what the education policies are in the current federal election. We'll return um, with some more detailed discussion of education in Australia after, after, I don't know, let's have a bit more handle. Let's have something that everyone recognises and most people like. The Hallelujah Chorus.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We're here to defending government schools, but we're also dealing with operations, the operation of separation of religion and the state here in Australia because that's one of the fundamental issues that keeps cropping up when you're talking about education. But we also spend a fair bit of time talking about the sort of the political landscape that allows the terrible things that are going on in, in the funding of Australian schools that allows it to happen in the first place, a sort of collective and strange madness. And as Jean often says, and I think she has a very good point, the fascists never went away. Yes, there was a war. I think it was the Second World War. Yeah, 1946, we defeated the fascists, but they never went away. And they certainly didn't necessarily go away here in Australia. And I think Dale's going to share with us an analysis of, of how fascism... Is, is alive and well in Australia today. Thanks, Rob. Uh, I've got an article here entitled The Facets of Australian Fascism, The Abbott Government Experiment, and it's by Dr George Venturini. It can't happen here. In his seminal work of 2004, Dr Britt studied the following regimes. Fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, Franco Spain, Salazar's Portugal, Papadopoulos' Greece, Pinochet's Chile and Suharto's Indonesia. To be sure, they constitute a mixed bag of national identities, cultures, developmental levels and history, but they all followed the fascist or proto-fascist model in obtaining, expanding and maintaining power. All those regimes have been overthrown, so more or less, so a more or less complete picture of their basic characteristics and abuses is possible. Analysis of those seven regimes revealed 14 common threads which linked them in recognisable patterns of national behaviour and abuse of power. These basic characteristics are more prevalent and intense in some regimes than in others, but they all share at least some level of similarity. They are 1. Powerful and continuing expressions of nationalism. From the prominent displays of flags and bunting to the ubiquitous lapel pins, the fervour to show patriotic nationalism, both on the part of the regime itself and of citizens caught up in its frenzy, was always obvious. Catchy slogans, pride in the military and demands for unity were common themes in expression of this nationalism. It was usually coupled with a suspicion of things foreign, which often bordered on xenophobia. Number two. Disdain for the importance of human rights. The regimes themselves viewed human rights as of little value and a hindrance to realising the objectives of the ruling elite. Through clever use of propaganda, the population was brought to accept these human rights abuses by marginalising, even demonising those being targeted. When abuse was egregious, the tactic was to use secrecy, denial and disinformation. Number three. Identification of enemies and scapegoats as a unifying, unifying cause. The most significant common thread among all these regimes was the use of scapegoating as a means to divert people's attentions from other problems, to shift blame for failures and to channel, pe- channel frustration in controlled areas. The methods of choice, relentless propaganda and disinformation, were usually effective – Often the regimes would incite spontaneous acts against the target scapegoats, usually communists, socialists, liberals, Jews, ethnic and racial minorities, traditional national enemies, members of other religions, secularists, homosexuals and terrorists. Active opponents of these regimes were inevitably labelled as terrorists and dealt with accordingly. Number four, the supremacy of the military and avid militarism. Ruling elites always identified closely with the military and the industrial infrastructure which it supported. A disproportionate share of national resources was allocated to the military, even when domestic needs were acute. The military was seen as an expression of nationalism and was used wherever possible to assert national goals, intimidate other nations and increase the power and prestige of the ruling elite. Number five, rampant sexism. Beyond the simple fact that the political elite and the national culture were male-dominated, these regimes inevitably viewed women as second-class citizens. They were adamantly anti-abortion and also homophobic. These attitudes were usually codified in draconian laws which enjoyed strong support by the orthodox religion of the country, thus lending the regime cover for its abuses. Number six, a controlled mass media. Under some of the regimes, the mass media were under strict direct control and could be relied upon never to stray from the party line. 
Other regimes exercised more, exercised more subtle power to ensure media orthodoxy. Methods included the control of licensing and access to resources, economic pressure, appeals to patriotism and implied threats. The leaders of the mass media were often politically compatible with the power elite. The result was usually success in keeping the general public unaware of the regime's excesses. Number seven, obsession with national security. Inevitably, a national security apparatus was under direct was under direct control of the ruling elite. It was usually an instrument of oppression, operating in secret and beyond any constraints. Its actions were justified under the rubric of protecting national security and questioning its activities was portrayed as unpatriotic or even treasonous. Number eight, religion and ruling elite tied together. Unlike communist regimes, the fascist and proto-fascist regimes were never proclaimed as godless by their opponents. In fact, most of those regimes attached themselves to the predominant religion of the country and chose to portray themselves as militant defenders of that religion. The fact that the ruling elite's behaviour was incompatible with the precepts of the religion was generally swept under the rug. Propaganda kept up the illusion that the ruling elites were defenders of the faith and opponents of the godless. A perception was manufactured that opposing the power elite was tantamount to an attack on religion. Number nine, power of corp corporations protected. Although the personal life of ordinary citizens was under strict control, the ability of large corporations to operate in relative freedom was not compromised. The ruling elite saw the corporate structure as a way not only to ensure military pr production in developed states, but also as an additional means of social control. Members of the economic elite were often pampered by the political elite to ensure a, con a continued mutuality of interests, especially in the repression of have-not citizens. Number 10. Power of labour suppressed or eliminated. Since organised labour was seen as the one power centre which could challenge the political hegemony of the ruling elite and its corporate allies, it was inevitably crushed or made powerless. The poor formed an underclass, viewed with suspicion or outright contempt. Under some regimes, being poor was considered akin to a vice. Number 11. Disdain and su suppression of intellectuals and the arts. Intellectuals and the inherent freedom of ideas and expression associated with them were anathema to these regimes. Intellectual and academic freedom were considered subversive to national security and the patriotic ideal. Universities were tightly controlled, politically unreliable faculty harassed or eliminated. Unorthodox ideas or expressions of dissent were strongly attacked, silenced or crushed. To these regimes, art and literature should serve the nat national interests or they had no right to exist. Number 12. Obsession with crime and punishment. Most of these regimes maintained draconian systems of criminal justice with huge prison populations. The police were often glorified and had almost unchecked power, leading to rampant abuse. Normal and political crime were often merged into trumped-up criminal charges and sometimes used against political opponents of the regime. Fear and hatred of criminals or traitors was often promoted among the population as an excuse for more police power. Number 13. Rampant cronyism and corruption. Those in business circles and close to the power elite often used their positions to enrich themselves. This corruption worked both ways. The power elite would receive financial gifts and property from the economic elite, who in turn would gain the benefit of government favouritism. Members of the power elite were in a position to obtain vast wealth, wealth from other sources as well, for example by stealing national resources. With the national security apparatus under control and the media muzzled, this corruption was largely unconstrained and not well understood by the general population. And number 14, fraudulent elections. Elections in the form of plebiscites or public opinion polls were usually bogus. When actual elections with candidates were held, they, were usually, they would usually be perverted by the power elite to get the desired result. 
Common methods included maintaining control of the election machinery, intimidating and disenfranchising opposition voters, destroying or disallowing legal votes, and, as a last resort, turning to a judiciary beholden to the power elite. Oh, Dale, that's fascinating. So that's how fascists organisations functionally work. That's the mechanics of fascism. Hmm. Well, I think here on the Dogs Program, we should actually give Australia a mark. Hmm. I think we'll have a rating of 1 to 10 for each of the points you've made. And let's just go through them one at a time. What was the first point about how a fascist government um, or a fascist, well, say, regime. A fascist regime um, um, works and, 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 and the mechanics of it? Okay. The, fir- the first point was? The, the first uh, point was... Powerful and continuing expressions of nationalism. Powerful and continuing expressions of nationalism. Well, I know when Tony Abbott was um, the Prime Minister, there was 1,233 flags behind him at some point, Mm. you know, flags everywhere and nationalism and and those people, those terrible boat people. I think, what what do you reckon on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of how nationalistic our current um, political system is? I, I would I would put it up there in the eights or nines. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to give it an eight. We'll, we'll be conservative. Mm. So nationalism in Australia, lots of flags and tattoos and, and all that sort of stuff. It yeah. comes and it goes. But I think yeah, Australians like to consider themselves nationalist. I mean, we've got, even got a special word, un-Australian, yeah, for those people exactly. that aren't nationalist enough. Mm. What was the second point? Second point, disdain for the importance of human rights. Disdain for the importance of... I reckon we could, we could go a ten on that one. I reckon... Uh, when you look at what's going on in Nauru and Manus Island oh, at the moment. Um, yeah, we've had so many international just, reports. Just, it's just Ask it's, our local Indigenous folk. Ask, ask our local Indigenous folk. Ask the people. Yeah, I think, I, I think I'm going to put that up on a nine. We could actually be worse, I think. Um, oh, but yeah? I'm not quite sure how. <laughs> I mean, there's a few people out there I've heard saying they should put a big barbed wire fence and put all the Indigenous people on one side and throw over. So we're not quite... Oh, so you visited Queensland too? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're not quite up to there, so I'm not going to give us a 10 on that. I'm going to give us a 9, though, because mm. I think, yeah, disdain for human rights at a, at a national level mm. is um, systematic, actually. Yeah, okay. Okay, point, three. point number three, uh, identification of enemies and scapegoats as a unifying cause. Oh, We're right up there, mate. Boat yeah, people, nice yeah, boat. boat people. What about terrorists? Oh, oh terrorists. Terrorist people, yeah, terrorist people. Yeah, oh. they're, they're terrible. I, I was reading the Herald Sun the other day. <laughs> terrible, those terrorists. <laughs> I'm going to give us an eight. I'm not going to exaggerate this because okay. there's, there's places out there that are worse than You're us. Right. Yeah, we're not the worst in the world, but we're, not, we're getting better. <laughs> Get a better Just a escape little bit getting. more effort. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, four. Number four was yeah, well, the supremacy of the military and avid militarism. Wow. Yeah. Well, look at how much uh, Mr. Turnbull's just spent on on the military. Oh yeah, we've got submarines and planes. Yeah, and and, and his predecessor the, the, with those jets that don't even have the guns working oh, for them. Do they have guns anymore? They just have. Well, they had like, these things that, that weren't even built yet and aren't going to be built now. So yeah, they're kind yeah, of obsolete. Yeah. I think the government's pretty. But you've talked to people in the street; they shrug their shoulders. It's not sort of you know. I don't know. I, I get I get gobsmacked at the amount of money I hear being spent on military. Yeah, and we're talking about the fascist government, not the fascist people, aren't we? We're talking about the fascist regime. The regime's in charge not, of spending not, money. Not, not the people. I'm going to give that a seven, you know, or a bit mm. more. Uh, well, you know, no, let's be conservative. You're yeah, I'm, I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be conservative. Okay. You know, it's more than five, though, the whole military Easily, thing. easily. Number five, rampant sexism. Yeah. Can good. I just give it a ten? Yeah, okay. All right, all right, darling. I'm, I'm not going to argue with you. Thanks, mate. I can't because that would be... <laughs> oh, no, not at all. You can <laughs> I, I, wel- I welcome an argument. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, no, I mean, if you look at the current government's um, uh, gender mix, it's just shocking. Mm. Like, there's one, I think one, one woman who's a minister, and I think there's one who's, who's, who's an assistant minister. I oh, know there's Michaela Cash, Julie Bishop, and I, mm. think, I think that's about it. But look at, look at um, the Abbott government's uh, Minister for Women's Issues. <laughs> yeah, the, the best thing he did for women was stop the boats. Oh, that was hilarious. And I think there were some flags in the background. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, was part of a press conference announcing he <laughs> bought some more guns or something. Oh, look, I'm sorry. Okay, let's, we'll, You've we'll, got we'll, to we'll, laugh or you'll cry. Yeah, yeah, I reckon. Point six. Point six, a controlled mass media. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I'd give it a to, 10, except I'm on 3CR. They're trying to hamstring us. they're not us. me. They're trying to take away community radio licences. They're trying to uh, hamstring the ABC. No, nah, they're not going to do it. I'm, I'm, I'll say they'd love to. I mean, as I say, I was reading the Herald Sun the other exactly. day. And all those left-wing people, you shouldn't listen to them. Yeah, so, I reckon yeah, it's yeah. around a six or seven. I'm still over five. Oh, definitely over five. Easily. Definitely over five. 
I mean, but with the internet and all that stuff, people say, but do you know what? Internet's but just. We're talking about internet. the, 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 uh, the regime itself yep. using these as tools. Oh, yes. Oh, so yeah. does it use a controlled mass media as a tool? Very obviously, yes. Seven? Yep. Seven. Yep. Okay, right. Next point. Okay, point seven, obsession with national security. Uh, nine. Yeah. I just, you just have Absolutely. to say, I mean, I, I don't it's, think, no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. We're obsessed with national. All those people and the dangerous and them, the boats. And others. We're, and we're going to kill them and have them burn themselves to death yeah. through sheer frustration yeah. um, because that means they won't drown at sea. Yeah. Oh, I just – I can't even begin. Anyway. Uh, okay, let's go to point number yeah. eight. Religion and the ruling elite tied together. Uh, Hello, yeah, funding for Catholic schools. schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Catholic university, My tax whether yeah, going to religious that's schools. right. Yeah, Catholic university. You get Catholic psychology and Catholic plumbing and Catholic nursing Catholic and universities, and, and, <laughs> and you know you can go to other schools and you can get upper conductor Westians. Well, well, let's just say Westianized mathematics. I don't know. And there, and this is a tool that they use yep. to maintain power. Yep. Um, um, by put, bringing them together. Have they done that? Yes. Yeah. And because in, the Australian Christian lobby, look at it, how powerful it is. None. Yeah. None. Thank you. None. Shocking. Which is kind of why we're talking about this, because it all That's exactly, is of a piece. It does. It all relates back to what the dogs are on about. Next, next point. Point nine. Power of corporations protected uh, over individual liberties. TPP? Yeah. Yep. Corporations can now see. Nine, ten. Yeah. I can, I'm sorry. With the TPP, once that was signed. Um, that is a legislated power yeah. that the corporations have over elected bodies in Australia, which the elected bodies allowed them to have. Yep. Craziness. Stuff. Yep. Point number 10. Yep. Power of labour suppressed or eliminated. Well, look at, look at um, the government getting rid of those heavily unionised industries like auto. Yeah, that's gone. And they had a Royal Commission to try and beat up on all the unions, yeah. but there was one union that was excluded, which was the Shop Distributors and Allied Trades Union, which is the one in one union that's actually found to be corrupt <laughs> in their dealings with Woolworths and Coles. Uh, so I would put that I reckon they give it a go. If there's unionists out there, don't give up. I'm, I'm not going to give this a 10. I'm going to give this a 7 because yeah. there is a fight back on the way. Yeah, so, let's hope. But, yeah, no, that, but in terms of the... Potentially, well, we're getting high well. These are the here. tools that the, that that a fascist regime, regime. would use, yep. would and employ, and has our government employed them? Yes. Royal Commission into trade mm. union corruption, but they won't have one into the banks. Fascinating. Yeah. Next point, number eleven: disdain and suppression of intellectuals and the arts. Uh, yeah, I remember Brandes. You remember Brandes? Oh. He, he took money away from the arts and put it into a ministerial slush fund, and says, "I'm only going to fund things that I like." Yeah. I think that counts as control of the arts, yeah, I don't you? Oh, I think it might. Actually. And suppression of uh, intellectuals, you know. How, I, I, Australia's one of the few countries I know that, um, you know, is really proud to be uneducated. Like, they, they um, you know, are really proud to attack people for their intellect as though intellect is a negative thing. I can tell you right now that in the sphere of academic edu- educationalists or education academics, they are absolutely... S something something T scared mm. of taking on anything to do with the private school system because that's where their money's going to be coming from in the future. There's a couple. Bernie Shepherd's one, Mr. Connor's the other. Um, but yeah, there's a few there are people out there. They are self censoring to the max. So mm. I'm, I'm going to give that a nine when it comes to talking about the way this country's run and how academics are just terrified mm. because they're all on contracts. Mm. Uh, number one? 12, yep. an obsession with crime and punishment. Uh, the jail population keeps going up and that makes me feel safer. No, hang on, what? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, this is the thing. It's it's what's criminalised and who's being targeted or profiled, which is what's happening. I walked past a free-to-air television the other day and there was an ad saying, if you see something suspicious, yeah. you better call the government. It's your duty. It's your duty. I'm going to give that a seven. Yeah, good call. Okay, number 13. Yep. Rampant cronyism and corruption. Uh, ten. Ten. Yeah. Ten. It's just a no-brainer. Ten. Right. Boys, jobs for the boys, anyone? Old school tie network? Old school boys. So we've got a hunt. Mark, score over 130. Wait, go ahead. No, no, wait, wait. There's another one. Point number 14, the okay. final one. Yep. Fraudulent elections. Now, I don't know how much this, this is, is valid in Australia, but I do know that there's been some attempted gerrymandering in Queensland just recently. Just recently? Just this year. Yeah. I'm going to say... 
it's for all those people out there listening here who are employed as the Australian um, election, Electoral Commission. Mm. Um, I think I think they try to do a great job, and I mm. think they succeed in large part. So I'm actually going to put that at a low score. Yeah. Yeah. I reckon it does happen. I reckon people have a go at it, but it comes out pretty quick, especially in a place like Queensland with its terrible record of gerrymandering. Absolutely. I'm going to give that a three. Okay. But, that that's, uh, yeah. but it happens. Yeah. It happens. It's a tool they try to employ, but not effectively, obviously. I suppose... Or, or so we think. All, all these marks here are, is it the exception or is it the rule? Mm. So when it comes to cronyism, uh, it's just the rule. the rule. That's just the yeah. way Canberra works. Did you know in Canberra the government is no longer the majority employer? <laughs> Lobbyists employ more people in Canberra than the government does. Mm. Speaks volumes. Doesn't it, though? Mm. Oh, let's have a look at that. We'll, 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 can we just... Um, Let's have a look how much that all adds up to. Right, so, yes, that's all that up because we carry the four, 25, 26, all right. So a score out of 140 is, the higher the score is, the more fascist Australia is under, these, under this rubric. Yeah. Uh, under this system, how fascist is Australia? On well, a score of 140, Australia is 110. Ah, uh, yeah, so we're 80% fascist. Hmm. 80% fascist. So, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, we've just done the analysis here on the Defence of Government Schools Program. We'll be back next week, having discovered that the whole thing in terms of education is very much weighted against government schools and that Australia is 80% fascist. We shall return. Um, we shall return next week because it's going to be Radiothon. Mm. Radiothon. Oh, yes. Get your, get, your, get your change out from that bedside table because 3CR needs it. Because we are community radio, because if, if we're not going to have a controlled media in a fascist exactly. state, we need to continue to be here. Mm. Contact us, by the way, at the Dogs Program at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until Radiothon next week, which we're really warming up for, it's bye for now. Bye. Says he.